Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Before we dive in, I'd just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionBee. They have helped over 70,000 customers be pension confident by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. They also have a great Sharia compliant pension option as well, which is why we personally really like them. And you can check out a review of their offering on the Sharia side on our website. Assalamu alaikum everyone, my name is Bilal Omarji and welcome to our first ever deep dive podcast interview. When I was a student long time ago, coming out of Dalul Uloom and going into the university, there was one thing that I wish I had access to back in the days. That thing was the ability to discuss or to hear and to learn from scholars who specialize in Islamic finance. Unfortunately, there was not such a easy access at the time. So the idea behind this series is for me to actually realize this aim. In each of these sessions, we will do a deep dive on topics related to Islamic finance and investment with some of the top scholars in this field right now. So for this very first interview, we're incredibly humbled to have Mufti Faraz Adam who's going to share with us some of his wisdom. And inshallah, we are going to cover a range of topics such as dropshipping, interest, and the issues of Muslims having to work in certain type of environment where, for example, they have to serve alcohol, but all that in a bit though. So first of all, Mufti Faraz, please tell us about yourself in 30 seconds. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you all here. In 30 seconds, it's uh, very easy. My name is Faraz Adam. I live in Leicester. I studied in Leicester in South Africa. And I continue to serve in Islamic finance, alhamdulillah, and in zakah as well as waqf and Islamic wills. I have a passion across Mu'amala. That's where my passion lies. And alhamdulillah, this is where I'm currently serving. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Mufti Sab. So let me ask you this question. Since you are kind of a Sharia advisor, I believe you have your own companies, which is uh, Amana Advisors, which is quite known around the world. One thing people, especially, you know, young scholars, etc., would love to hear is what was your actual journey to become a Sharia advisor? Well, it's a very pertinent question. And I think um, 
firstly, of course, it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who you know, opens doors and ultimately everything comes from him. But if I talk about a journey and how Allah placed the path for me and how things were put together, I think it starts really in when I was 18 years old, when I left college and I went to Darul Ulum, uh, Darul Ulum Nesta. In the first year, as most students are, you're very passionate about now, right? And Arabic grammar, that's your end all and be all. And I must have read over 20 books and my passion was Arabic grammar at the time. And that's what I wanted to do. But then when you go to the second year, a whole new world opens up to you, right? You start seeing a bit of hadith, a bit of tafsir, a bit of this, a bit of that. And I guess it was in the second year when my heart started becoming inclined towards fiqh. And I started thinking that, you know, fiqh is something that I really enjoy and like. And I guess that's because I came back from a college background, I was always looking at application. I was really looking at how do we apply Islamic knowledge in our lives. And I, I saw fiqh as one method to apply knowledge, right? But then I think when it came to the fourth year in Hidayah, I realized that many abwab or chapters in Hidayah and all the books that we study, it's hard to kind of apply them in a sense to research new areas. I mean, this is quite funny at the time. It's really funny now thinking about it, but at the time, I just had this wish, I wish I became a mujtahid, right? <laughs> and this <laughs> desire. And so what I did was on a piece of paper, I wrote mujtahid in the middle and I wrote every single area. So for example, tafsir, usul al-tafsir, hadith, usul al-hadith, fiqh, usul al-fiqh, all the areas and all the branches. I said, look, I need to master every one of these areas to get in the middle. And I look at that paper now, I laugh that, you know, how far we are from that reality. And, you know, at the time you're young, you know, you're passionate. I saw Islamic finance to be one area where potentially was innovating or researching, developing new ideas because the financial world was always evolving at a fast pace. And so it was in the fourth year when my heart really settled on Islamic finance within IFTA. And then I was initially primed to go to Darul Ulum Karachi. Uh, you have Sheikh Al-Islam, that was my goal. Like, this is where I want to go. This is the place in the world to study IFTA and do Islamic finance and everything. But it just so happened that at the time, and I have family in Pakistan and Karachi, so it was set for me to go there. But it just so happened that I was, my heart preferred to study in English. And I think it was in the fourth year then, I started talking to uh, Mufti Ibrahim Desai, rahimahullah, my teacher. Uh, I started communicating with him and speaking to him. And that's when I really set my sight on South Africa, just that I just felt it was more reasonable for me. And so I went to South Africa. We specialize, this Darul Ifta and then the Mufti Ibrahim Desai, rahimahullah, whoever knows about him, he specializes in, in Islamic finance. And so in that time, what we, what we had was exposure to Sharia board meetings. I was privileged to go to Sharia board meetings with him of Islamic banks. So I would sit and observe how he would conduct himself, how he would discuss with the directors and other board members and so on and so forth. We would get knowledge, access to financial contracts, which you couldn't get normally. We would get presentations from industry experts. So it was a very active, very live environment of Islamic finance. It wasn't just theory. And of course, we were still studying. I studied the Majalla completely there, which was really a blessing. We studied Islamic finance further as well. So there was so much knowledge taking place, education, as well as practice and experience which really propelled me then to start a journey in this area. And it'll always be South Africa and Darul Ifta Mahmudiya, which was the, I would say, the catalyst for anything that came after. And of course, the duas of my teacher. And then later on, I leave 2012. I was quite silent. I was just writing, researching Fatawa. And then I did my master's in Islamic finance, which was very beneficial because it gives you another angle to add to your vision, 
right, which you never had. So the, I did a master's degree in Islamic finance, which assisted me. Uh, I did further courses in industry, quite a few courses. But I would say then Allah opened up doors for me. People came to me, doors started opening. And as I said, it's Allah who just puts things together, right? So the more you write, the more you research, the more people find you beneficial. I mean, if you work hard, you'll have something to provide to people, right? Naturally, Allah will give you something where you might be able to benefit others. And if people find benefit within you, they'll come to you and take benefit. That's just the nature, the way the world works. And so then before we knew it, it was 2016, 2017, I had Amana Advisors was launched. Now it's been four or five years, alhamdulillah, and it's been flourishing ever since. So that's really the story. And Allah just takes work and Allah just like opens up new doors. But if I was to put it into, I would say, four kind of key points that students can take away from here, that what's their journey of becoming a Sharia advisor or anything for that matter? It's four things. Number one is study, study hard, right? That's number one. Continuous study. You know, you don't just study while you're in madrasa and you end. That's the deception. You continuously study. Number two is you practice. So you practice by answering fatawa, researching matters, you know, the latest matters, always keep researching. Number three is observation. You observe experts. You spend time with the experts. You become a mentee. You be mentored by the great people, by the great scholars in the area. That's very important to have oversight of the experts and to be in the company. And that will be a huge, huge blessing if somebody does that. And number four, have a risk-taking mentality. Like push yourself out of your comfort zone. Take a, take a challenge on. And I think if you have these four kinds of, I would say, elements within yourself, then the doors will open in any area. And Allah will give you khair if you push yourself. That's just the way Allah, he grants people who strive hard. Right? As Allah tells in the Quran. Right? Yes, that's quite interesting, uh, Mufisab. And I would totally agree with you. I myself, you know, when uh, I graduated, I think when I went, the first time I heard about Islamic finance was after Faragat. Uh, in 2004, when I went back to Reunion Island, so it was my dad who told me about something called Islamic banking. But then at the time, I didn't know much about it. And then I came back to the UK upon the advice of my cousin and another mufti, a local mufti, who said, you know, go to university. And there is a niche, you know, in Islamic finance, because at the time there was this assumption that Islamic finance is going to be implemented in France. So I came back to the UK and I went to the university. And uh, I think the issue that I have found then myself at the time was that there was no much guidance in terms of how do you actually become a Sharia advisor? One thing is to actually find the job of Sharia advisor. And the other thing is, how do you actually prepare yourself to become a Sharia advisor? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I remember at the time when I came back 2008, I did a postgraduate diploma in Islamic banking and finance. And the first thing I did after completing that degree was to apply for a job at Islamic Bank of Britain. <laughs> <laughs> they refused my application. And when I called them, I said, you know, why? Why can't you offer me a job? They said, no, but, you know, we're looking more for people who's got experience in, I think at the time it was a job in the call center, right? So they said, oh, we're looking for people with a sales background, people who's been working in, in the call center, you know, selling phone contracts, et cetera. Yeah. So this is when I met, later on, I met with Mufti Barakatullah, who then guided me, you know, towards, you know, what to study and what to do, how to, I think, you know, more or less, he actually said, you know, the same thing that you have said, 
putting a lot of effort learning things. Dr. Daud Bakr as well, in one of his book, I, I think one of the advice that he tells young students is to always keep on learning. And as a Sharia advisor, it's not something that you just do now. For one year, you become a graduate and then, then that's it, you're finished. He says, even as, as a Sharia advisor, you just have to keep on learning all the time. It's just like an everyday thing. Just commenting on that, right, is being a Sharia advisor is a very, it's not an easy role because you have to be up to date with everything that's happening in the markets, up to date with all the latest trends, up to date with all the latest research, up to date with all the new products that are coming out. It's a very, very challenging role. It's not something where you just sit comfortably looking at contracts, reviewing, commenting, giving fatwa. It's not at all in any way, shape or form the case. And it's really a full-time role when you have to really immerse yourself. It's an, an amana, it's a trust, as well as you're accountable to Allah. So you have to make sure you fulfill this duty properly. And then you're serving the ummah in a way which is very challenging. It's not easy to do this. No, definitely, definitely. One thing though, Mufisab, saying that is that you see, sometimes people speak like, and I'm talking in the UK context, for example. If you look at how Muslims were like, let's say 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, you will find that there are more Muslims entrepreneurs these days. Muslims are investing more in financial markets compared to 10, 15 years ago. And I think, you know, with the rise of Islamic finance guru, etc., we can actually see that. And even, you know, during your time, you are at National Zakat Foundation every year when people are contacting you, you know, to calculate your zakat, you would have realized that the type of zakatable assets that people have now compared to before has really changed. You know, we're not really talking about just cash and gold anymore. We're talking about real investment. And this is coming, you know, from men and Muslim men and Muslim women as well. So people investing more in financial markets, they have more businesses, you know, they're creating, you know, startups, et cetera, et cetera. But when you are talking to these investors and these businessmen and women, you know, sometimes you hear that a sort of complaint from them that they say, you know, scholars do not understand finance. Scholars do not understand finance. And maybe because it's their experience with their local scholars or the, the local imam, et cetera, et cetera. First of all, what do you think about this complaint, first of all? And secondly, how would you say that these businessmen and businesswomen, these investors, how can they actually help scholars in understanding finance mm. in a better way? I mean, what I would say to that is, I would say the comment is inaccurate or misplaced because it's not the job of every scholar to master finance, right? And to be honest, look, in my IFTA studies, there was only one or two students from the 10 or 12 that graduated had a passion for finance. I mean, Islam is so rich. The knowledge and ilm that we have is so beautiful and so vast, right? Somebody might have a passion for hadith and that's needed. Somebody might have a passion for tafsir and that's needed. So every scholar naturally adapts to what they've been created for. You know, say, right? That kind of thing, right? So wherever a person is shaped to serve, naturally will have an inclination for that area. So not all scholars naturally have an inclination to finance and they don't need to, right? Scholars will serve in different areas. They'll be doing some amazing efforts. For example, there might be some imams who are amazing at speaking, giving guidance and doing islah. I could never do that. There might be some excellent scholars teaching in madaris, excellent durus, 
And we could never do that, right? So every scholar is playing a significant role. What I would say to people making such a comment is you need to approach the right people. You don't go to a lawyer for conveyancing to get your you know, visa matters done, right? That's exactly the power up here. You need to go to the right people for the right thing. So you need to understand that my imam is best for, for me in these matters and I approach him for these matters. So for your day-to-day needs, your Islam, your kind of like Iman boosting, for learning about Islam, Islam your Tajweed, your Quran, which is all an obligation. That's why your Imam plays a primary role in that. When it comes to more niche areas, your most Imams do this anyway nowadays. They'll say, okay, yeah, go to this particular person or this particular website and they will assist you because it's a very niche area. They want to specialize and they specialize in that area. So I would say it's, a blemish in all of us where we don't go to specialists. We always try to get cut corners and go to the easiest route and just go to your local imam, where your local imam is doing an amazing job already. And he's got so many things on his kind of plate. So we need to, I would say, go to the experts in an area. And that's when these things will be solved. So I don't think even when it comes to learning about finance, and if Allah's given you the kind of like desire to excel in the financial world and Islamic finance, then that person himself will know that he needs to continue studying, will have contacts with the right people, and he will continue developing himself. Because the principle is, you know, the principle of survival of the fittest. That also applies here. You cannot survive and benefit people if you don't keep fit, right? If you don't know what you're talking about, sooner or later, you'll be out, out completely. You can't benefit people. People will not come to you because you don't provide any value. And unfortunately, that's how it works. You know, you have to be fit in terms of your ilm, be, understand what you're talking about and also understand the context you're working in the products the investments contracts how they all work what's happening in the markets you need to understand all of that only then would naturally if you have a CV, imagine if you're applying for a job and you mentioned about your job right about Sign bank of britain your cv will reflect how employable you are and if you want to do allah's work it's like allah's hiring people you have to do everything that you have all the effort in and show that look to, to Allah I'm trying my best here's my kind of CV whatever little I can do please accept me and Allah will accept the best to serve right so that's the matter so you have to have a I would say your studies but at the same time that connection with Allah is very very important on that note uh, Mufti Sahib what would be your last advice for students or for young scholars who would want to go into or would want to have an Islamic financial career what kind of studies do you think they would require before they can go into this industry? I mean, just a, one general observation and come to the finance bit is every student who enters madrasa, and I'm writing actually a, a small book on this right now, is every student who enters into a madrasa must have a very clear vision of what he wants to do, right? And because Alim course is a very broad and vast course. It's comprehensive, but very broad. It's like you do medicine, but then you have to specialize further, right? You have to be, uh, go either into ne- neuroscience or cardiovascular, whatever, right? There's so many areas after medicine that you can specialize in. So what I would say to any student is when you start the Alim course, be very clear and specific on where you want to do khidmah, where you want to serve. Do you want to be an imam? If yes, understand that for an imam, you need to excel in tajweed, in Quran, in qira'ah. In a wa'ad, targhib wa targhib, educating people. You have to, it's a skill, you have to master that. Do you want to be a writer? Then you have to become proficient and well-versed in writing. You know, get a degree if it supports you. You want to be a translator, he has its own skills. Do you want to be a teacher? 
you need this qualification to understand the uslub, the methodology of teaching. Do you want to go into hadith? Right? What do you want to do in hadith? Do you want to go in Quran, in tarikh, in aqidah, in da'wah, in ifta? Even in ifta, then you can break it down. There's finance, there's food science, marital law, zakat, ibadat, hajj, Islamic wills, inheritance. So many areas. So the problem with today, the most students I see are having is trying to be very, you know, that laser sharp focus is not there. You have to have pinpoint laser sharp focus on what you want to do, why you want to do, and how you're going to go about doing it. And when you don't have that, you end up graduating. And I'm sure you, you'll be able to relate to this. You, you probably have people you've seen, you graduate, you don't know what you're doing. Right? You just come out six years studying, and now what do you do? You've, you've come out of the madrasa, the whole world is in front of you. Where do you go? What do you do? Many people are in this boat. It's because, and you're right, that guidance is not necessarily there. And that's why I'm writing this book, right? To really help students to say, look, you need to be very focused in the khidma you want to do. And to add to that, some types of khidma naturally result in remuneration, and they'll pay you. Some don't. So if you choose a khidma, for example, in tafsir, you want to go in tafsir, it's very hard to find something which will remunerate you in that particular area, unless you, you, you be dynamic and you know create something. But you will then have to think of sustainability as well as serving khidma. So these are plans every student should have because knowledge is like water, right? It needs to flow to keep fresh and pure. If it stagnates, it goes bad, it loses its taste and smell, and it attracts impurity. So we have to be very focused, fresh, and continuously keep the knowledge fresh. So that's why I would say in terms of students generally, in Islamic finance, what I would say now, coming to a specific point is, this is my personal view, right? You're more than welcome to defer. And please do share your, your thoughts, what you think about this. I really think for finance, iftar is necessary. I don't think a person can excel in Islamic finance without doing iftar, if you want to be a Sharia advisor. If you don't do iftar and you have that kind of very detailed intimate kind of relationship with your books, with understanding the reasons why things happen, understanding how fiqh operates, you can't really work as a Sharia advisor at a very proficient level. So you have to have a very strong fiqh background, very, very advanced level with teaching potentially. That'll be really, really powerful. And then you need to have industry, as I mentioned earlier, the practice. So you need industry experience. You need to get on some kind of like a free role, wherever the case may be. I've done several such roles where you don't want paid. You just want experience. You just want to have some kind of knowledge and understanding. And then number three is observation. You need to tag along and be under the guidance of senior Sharia advisors. And alhamdulillah, I was blessed to have that. Until now, I have my own senior scholars that I turn to in Pakistan, in South Africa, in the GCC. I have contact with them. I can ask them any question without a shadow of doubt. I'll get a reply, explanation of why certain things are happening. And I think that's very important, creating, developing a kind of mentor and being under somebody senior is always beneficial in anything. And then I would say then finally continue to studying, continue studying, never ends, never ends. No, I totally agree with you, Mohsab. And this is a very important message to young graduates and to students. Because when you go to university, usually university, they have this service, right? Career advice. I can actually help you decide what kind of course would be the most suitable for you, depending on what you actually want to do later on. Unfortunately, we don't have that in our madaris. And nowadays, if you really want to concentrate on something, and Mufti Faraz has 
has said it, that there are people that graduate from Darlum and by the end of it, you don't know what they're doing. And I remember when I went to do IFTA in 2014. So I went to do IFTA 10 years after I graduated from Darlum. And one of the first questions that was asked to the IFTA student, who were still young, right? They were still like 19, 18. One of those that asked them, what is it you're planning to do later on after graduation? And everybody answered the same thing. I'm going to do khidmah in hadith. I'm going to do khidmah in hadith. The reality is that nobody is doing khidmah in hadith. And when we're in Dalul Ulum, this is kind of the dream that we probably have. We're going to do khidmah in hadith. We're going to become shaykhul hadith. We're going to do khidmah in hadith. We're going to write about hadith. We're going to write about Quran. The reality is different once you're out there. Once you're out there, you're going to realize that you actually need to work. You need to earn a, a living. You need to pay the bills because we don't actually see these things when we're in Dalum, right? It's free food, free accommodation, especially in the UK. You know, we can go home every weekend or something like that. We have access to mobile phones now, access to laptop. Life is kind of easy for us. So we do not think about all these things. So unfortunately, there's nobody to actually tell us how to think. What is it that we... Nobody's there to actually prepare us about what we need to do after graduation. So it's something that we need to think about ourselves. We need to decide. And once you study, there are a lot of potential during your studies co- uh, years as well, Muftisab, uh, right? Because during that time, the amount of time that you have in Dalul Ulum, the amount of things you can study, the amount of tahqiq you can do by yourself. You mentioned about ifta, even in ifta, if you really want to succeed in things like Islamic finance, there's so much tahqiq that you can do by yourself. It's something that you have to do by yourself anyway. You know, it's not something like somebody is going to sit with you and is going to put it in your brain. You have to put that effort in by yourself. And if you do not do that, then you will not go far, unfortunately. For example, in Darul Ulum, now where I studied in Leicester, in Darul Ulum Leicester, they do have curious advice, right? Alhamdulillah, that Darul Ulum is amazing. It's flourishing. They've added so many things which really helps students to see a very clear path where they want to go. They have even when I was a student, actually, there was career advice. We had like a session on careers, on what you want to do. And now I think it's become much more formal as part of uh, institution. Now you have careers advice and somebody comes in to discuss and share ideas with you. What what needs to happen now, and this I'm trying to do in this book, is trying to map it out for somebody. Look, if you want a map, this is what you need, right? This is what you need to think about. Just, you have to spell it out because it's hard at that time. You know, there's so much going on. Eight to eight, you're studying. And if you're doing overtime as well, your own studies, it's not easy at all. So Alhamdulillah, I think that is definitely taking place now. Inshallah. I will look forward to read this book, Inshallah. Moving on to the next question, Mufisab. Uh, recently, and I think this is a very, very, very important topic, especially within the Muslim community. You are part of the Islamic Finance Guru Fatwa Forum. You, you've seen these questions probably 100 times being posted over there. The issue regarding dropshipping, whether it is halal or not. And recently, you have written an article about it on the Sharia understanding of dropshipping. Can you just tell us a bit more about it, Mufsal? Yeah, no, absolutely. So this is like continuous inquisition and thinking about, look, how do we come up with an interpretation for dropshipping, which ticks all the boxes without having to try to like reinterpret something, right? What is there or which model is it that can really fit into dropshipping? So one of the ideas myself and my friend had was, which is uh, Brother Muhammad Suleiman from Oman, very nice brother, mashallah, very, very knowledgeable. He works in, in an Islamic bank there. 
is Juala is a potential product because look, what's the current problem is with dropshipping. If you think of it as a sale, the dropshipper never has possession or daman of the item transferred directly from the supplier to the end customer, right? Or the manufacturer to the end customer. It can't be a seller either because the same problems apply. The dropshipper never acquires that possession and risk, okay? And then a while ago, I had this idea that, look, if it's all about daman and risk transfer, intiqad al-daman, what if we have this model whereby we tell the dropshipper to assume the liability? It's as, as though as he is liable. But the problem with that, assuming liability is what we call personal guarantee. That in fiqh, he's just becoming a personal guarantor. It's somewhat of assuming daman and like a guarantor kafala type thing, which again... Is not really genuinely representing what's happening. Okay. So even that doesn't really fulfill the requirement. And I had discussed this with other scholars as well. And they were saying, uh, maybe not. Yeah. Although we understand what you're trying to do, because that's the one box we're just trying to resolve. That's the one area everybody's trying to resolve. But that didn't work either. So clearly, the dropshipper cannot be a seller because the Qabd issue is always there. There was another kind of scenario where you we could say that look because the dropshipper instructs the re, the the supplier to ship it to a certain area that is considered to be qabz because he is now making him act on his behalf so through a wakala some kind of like uh, agency the supplier now is acting in the interest of the uh, dropshipper and thereby transferring the item from themselves to the end customer maybe that could work but then the problem with that is the liability still remains with the manufacturer. Right? So still there's an issue there because it's the liability which is a key issue here. And you know, the whole maqsad, the fuqaha mention of qabd is intiqal al-daman. Milkiya doesn't transfer daman, it's qabd that transfers uh, daman. So this is what we're trying to establish. And then, okay, if sales don't work, the next kind of scope was, can we develop some kind of a different relationship? So we looked at ijara, we looked at wakala. Ijara can't work. Why can't ijara work? Because ijara is a contract, right? It's very specific in terms of work, hours, pay, and period, right? You have to have that for an ijara to be valid. Now, there's no contract explicitly between the manufacturer and dropshipper. There's no such contract. There's ambiguity for all in terms of work, hours, pay, and period. Therefore, ijara cannot work. Wakala, the problem with wakala is fees have to be clear and fixed. Right? And that's not the case either here. Who said the dropshipper is not taking any fees whatsoever from the manufacturer. There's no fees being paid from the manufacturer, the supplier to the dropshipper. So Wakala can't work either. So what happened is we were thinking about Juala then as an alternative. And Juala is a very interesting product, which more and more, Alhamdulillah, I'm seeing applications of Juala in contemporary products. I'm using Juala right now to structure another product. And it's a very, very flexible product to use. What we thought of was, Ju'ala, if you consider the manufacturer as an offerer, and he is happy for people to come and sell his products on his behalf. So the manufacturer is happy that I don't mind anyone coming, any retailer selling my products on my behalf to other people. The IOV standards also mention that in a Ju'ala, it's permissible to have compensation from the subject matter itself. Right. So the subject matter or the sale of the subject matter can be a form of compensation. This is also the case with wakala. For example, if a person is uh, selling something, he can take a fee from the, whatever he sells as a wakala fee. That's also permissible, right? As mentioned, IOF standards. 
But in Juada, the benefit is the amount can be uncertain and still valid. And the sale can be uncertain and it's still valid. So what we designed then was we designed this way whereby if we rethink the whole thing whereby the dropshipper is not selling anything, rather he is just representing the manufacturer to make sales, all he does, he, he keeps a difference. He keeps a difference between his sale price, what he's marketing at, and the manufacturing price. And the difference is his fee. That will resolve the issue of him having, he doesn't have to worry about qabd anymore because mm-hmm. we're not considering him to be the seller at all. Rather, he's selling on behalf of the manufacturer and therefore he is at liberty to benefit without having to worry about qabd. But Muftisab, then in that case, I, I think that's quite clear and that is actually quite clever. But even then, you know, in reality, for example, yeah, Let's say I'm a seller on Amazon, okay, or on eBay, and I'm selling something. Now, that item is based in China. If, for example, the item does not reach my customer, then who is liable for it? Am I liable or is it the supplier based in China who is liable? So this liability will always be, if it comes down to negligence, willful misconduct, or breach of terms by the dropshipper. Because the dropshipper is has been negligent in any way shape or form he's not had the clear instructions or the clear information or there's some kind of misconduct from his side or breach of terms then of course he'll have some liability there right because now he's dormant but ultimately what we're saying here is we need to reshape this to clearly show that it's this middleman is a middleman that's what we have to try and portray in any such relationship so a drop shipper should make it very clear he's drop shipping and liability therefore ultimately rests with the manufacturer and that's how you resolve all the issues. And the dropshipper is just purely a middleman. He will be liable as a middleman if he does something which is negligent, uh, misconduct or breach of terms. But otherwise, it's the manufacturer who, who will bear responsibility and liability. And that's where the tweak should come to make it Sherry compliant, just to be very frank, honest and transparent. And look, this way, dropshipping, we're selling on behalf of XYZ. And as a middleman, as a person who is there, he can clearly tell the customers that we can lodge your complaint with the but we have no liability. That's it. Just make a disclaimer. We hold no liability. Liability rests with the manufacturer. We will lodge your complaints with whoever, and that's the most they can do. Okay, so I understand. So we still, or the seller still has to mention that, that he is just a middle person. There right? should be some kind of disclaimer somewhere because yeah. one of the things of being transparent up here is very important because he's just an agent, right? Yeah. I mean, from an agency perspective, it's not necessary to disclose. You can be an undisclosed agent as well in Sharia. That's not a problem. Like in Wakala, where you do idhafa of the aq to yourself, that's also permissible. You could also do this here. But because there's a question of liability, the end customer should know then that even, for example, even in Wakala, and this is actually a good point, in Wakala, when the, because, you know, in the fuqaha talk about idhafa, who, when a, a wakil does idhafa of, of the aq to himself, the purchaser from the wakil will take the wakil to court. The wakil is the one pursued and then the wakil will go to the end manufacturer. So this can work here as well, potentially, but it seems to be easier, especially in the kind of like setup that we're working at at a transnational level, just to have a clear disclaimer that look, we operate as a an intermediary for which whoever and any complaints will be lodged with the end manufacturer and we will attempt and try our best to serve whatever complaint you have. So saying that, what do you think about the, I guess, you know, like when you go on the website like Amazon, 
you know, the writing, the contents of the writing is quite standardized. But what do you think about small prints? If we have this sort of disclaimer in the small prints and the person did not read it, the customer did not read it, is it the seller's fault? Um, say a, a small print is so common now, right? Everywhere. It, I mean, people overlook it because people are generally assuming the small print to be standard, right? It's a standard small print. There's no need to read it. But this is a weakness because a small print is also part of our act and contract. And as a principle, we should always be aware of what we're signing into. Only, a, I would say, a, a person who has literally no self-concern for himself will just overlook all these small prints. I mean, if you're taking a financing agreement somewhere and you don't look at a small print, you're just putting yourself at risk. So to cover small print is not only from a Sharia perspective, but also your risk, managing your own risk, understanding what you're entering into. And so I would say that in Amazon, wherever, if it's whether it's small print, whether it's large print, it should be mentioned clearly. And it should be, if there's a lot of detail in the small print, it makes sense. And this usually does, is the case where there's a note that, you know, please refer to a small print or read the small print for more information. And I, I would believe that the seller would be absolved but at least having that much, then it's a customer's responsibility. I mean, he's going into it without reading the small print. And just to finish on this point of dropshipping with this app, because obviously there's been a lot of discussion about dropshipping, but they, many times people have tried to push forward. So in trying to make dropshipping sure compliant, many people have tried to push forward the arguments that in the Maliki Madhab, it is permissible, you know, to sell something uh, without taking possession, you know, as long as it is not food, etc. Did you look into it? What was your finding? Is it actually possible to make it work under the Maliki Madhab? Yeah, well, good point. I actually looked into this and what the Maliki Madhab refers to is called Haqqut Tawfiyah. Even in the Maliki Madhab, you have to take Qabd. You can't get away from that in these items. Right? Certain items you can get away with. And as far as I recall, yeah, it's in stuff like food stuff and that. But generally, as far as I remember from my research, even the Maliki Madhab, it wouldn't work in our uh, scenario. And they have a whole discussion under the principle of Haqqutawfiyah, where you have to take Qabz of Daman before you cancel on. That is a very interesting point. I looked into it as well at some point. And me personally, what I've found is that there seems to be some sort of contradicting information from the Malikis on this point. And uh, I think uh, there is a... An author, I forgot his name now. I think he's uh, Musaib bin Abdullah Al Hakail or something, Al Hukail or something like that. He wrote a book about Zaman. Uh, he mentioned about these contradictions in the Malik Madhab. And he himself said he's not actually sure why there's a contradiction. And he says that in some places, some places, and this seems to be that what Imam Malik says is in complete accordance with whatever the Jamul, whatever the remaining scholars are saying, meaning that you cannot sell something unless you actually have the liability. Okay, so without liability, you cannot sell anything. So I contacted the Darul Ifta of uh, the UAE once about it, and uh, I asked them about this dropshipping process, and they said that it would not be Sharia compliant because of the liability not being there. However, they did not quote from the Maliki Madhab. They quoted from the Shafi'i Madhab. But yeah, it does seem that uh, it cannot really On this, right? And I've just pulled it up. Because what I did, I did a research on the Maliki Madhab because when I was looking into dropshipping, this is Ibarah from Mahashid al-Dasuqi, right? He mentions that, look, 
بالعقد الصحيح اللازم بل بالقبض and this is the key so I would say look at this this whole idea of حق توفية is the real principle in understanding the Maliki madhab here and of course you're not only are you looking at Imam Malik's personal view but you have to look at what the madhab the view of the madhab is and the mashhur in the madhab to understand exactly what the the imams of the madhab then settled on as a view and that's very important to find the rajih opinion and that's why I think many a time there's confusion because there's always you know the books of fiqh how they operate there'll be multiple views but you have to navigate through the rajih and the mashhur of any madhab to settle on the actual view of the madhab to understand the view of the madhab so you also have to look at the context as well you know in which these ibarahs have been written because if i am not wrong there was also a possibility that whatever you know the malikis have said that you don't actually need cubs when you're selling things is that in their context when you're selling something without having taken possession by default you already have liability mm. so the moment you bought it even though you haven't taken possession of it liability is already there so for them selling something which you haven't taken possession of yet it doesn't matter because you always have liability mm-hmm. from the moment you done the act of buy and that was a very interesting one. and that if that was to be proven then it would explain you know the whole thing about why there's two different position between in the madhab between selling things without taking possession but then there is the exception in regards to food because for food what they are saying is the default position when you're buying food you can only take liability once you actually take possession of it mm. not before that yeah in this particular like research when i was doing the fuqaha the maliki fuqaha clearly mentioned if it's a ghaib product and which is the case in dropshipping the dropshipper is in a different country right mm. get uh because it's absent where this kind of like leniency is where it's al-mabi'ul hadir which they call something which is present in front of you nearby which the hanafi fuqaha talk about takhli or takhliya it's a similar concept so the fuqaha are very similar in their understanding but they just use different terminology but when it comes to the essence of what they're talking about it's more or less very similar definitely muftisab i agree on this muftisab and moving on to the next question you know like in the case of drop shipping having discussed this matter you know with many people even sometimes you know scholars there are many who are involved in drop shipping they would not actually or they don't believe that drop shipping is haram the dalil is that they don't see anything you know that is so obvious that makes it haram like there is no such a thing as riba involved etc 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 which brings me to my next question is that not just in drop shipping but many times many times we see that the people tend to have some sort of difficulties in understanding certain rational behind rulings especially when it comes to financial affairs so for example you might have like somebody who's working you know in a call center for example selling insurance contract now we know that conventional insurance contract is not permissible Now if you're going to tell somebody okay you know insurance is not permissible is haram therefore selling the insurance contract as well is not permissible therefore you shouldn't be you know selling insurance contract you know in a call center but even then there are people that are not convinced and I'm not saying that they're rejecting they're saying no but you know uh, only Allah will judge me I'm not talking about that what I'm saying is these people even after being explained the rational behind it 
they do not feel convinced by it. So does that mean that we are failing in trying to explain to them the rulings correctly, or is it something else, Muftisa? It's a very, very good question, a deep question. I would say there's two parts to this. One is, it's always challenging for people to leave haram. The hadith in Bukhari, in Muslim, which comes to mind, right? naturally people are inclined, or there's always an element of one's self-desire to just do what's in the best interests. So the people are conflicted in these scenarios anyway, because think about it from their perspective, this is the source of earning and income. So they're conflicted. Naturally, you'll be looking for any permissible method to do what you're doing. There's a conflict there. Secondly, it's always harder to understand these rationale because of this conflict. You don't want to understand it because you're seeing it from a different worldview and lens. And personally, when it comes to rationale, Look, the uslub and the methodology of the Qur'an and hadith is not to go too deep into rationale. The uslub has always been focus on the foundation, which is this targhib, this tarheeb, the iman, islam, islah, right, and ihsan. Focus on this. Everything else will fall into place. And I think because we've kind of detached ourselves from really spiritually working on ourselves and making ourselves better people, naturally there's more question marks so to speak, which are framed as very logical, very like you know intriguing questions. Whereas in reality, it's just it's covering something else, which is a deficiency in iman. I mean, the Quran and Sunnah. If you look at it, you'll really find detailed rationale, if any. You'll just find maybe some words here and there to comfort a ruling. But look, this is Allah and His Nabi given a ruling and finished. End of story. And the, the ulama today are the inheritors of the Anbiya, and so there needs to be, I think, a balance in terms of how we approach this. Whereby I think the focus should be on Islam. Because the moment you start going down rationale, it is only so much we can understand and explain. To be honest, there's only so much. A time comes where it becomes either samina wa ta'na, or you either go a different way, samina wa sayna kind of thing, right? And this is what the Quran tells us. Look, why do we have in the Quran the examples of the Nasara, the examples of Banu Israel? Because one went more towards the kind of like logical way, trying to understand, explain, kept asking, probing, and trying to understand every single thing And that can lead to deviance as well But it doesn't mean all the time But yes, it has a tendency to And likewise the other extreme So I believe that rational While it's very important to explain to people All the more or even double We have to focus on people's Islam And try to make them understand That the Akhirah Why we're here for What's our purpose in our life This is very important, number one And when it comes to rational Where rational is discussed in the majalis And the sessions of fiqh Because that's where implementation is done. That's where we need to understand ilal and, and ma'ani and rationale because we are applying fiqh. So it's very important. And yes, it's very beneficial. In fact, in many of my fatawa, what I try to do, I always write the fatwa. Then I try to write the fiqh and the wisdom because it's just today's day and age. It's, people like to have completeness. They just like to know the way the world works. People like to know why as well. And there's no harm. You can say the why, but... You are right in a certain degree. We need to emphasize more on explaining the why in a beautiful way. Right? So people understand oh, this is the hikmah with numbers, with statistics, with data. For example, riba, you can explain what riba is, right? A long discussion. Or you can just give, give a few statistics and numbers to say, look, this is what riba does to society. End of story, right? I think that's the approach we should have, whereby we become more statistical because numbers is fact. Numbers gives you 
a true or false. They don't give you like, it's not subjective. It's a very objective, factual statement. And so numbers are very powerful in explaining many concepts. If you can show them through data, through numbers, I think it's very powerful. But beyond that, explaining rationale is good. That the Mufassirun have done it, Muhadithun have done it, and Fuqahab also explored it. But I think we need to also work equally on people's kind of like ita'a and the desire to want to be close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I think that's very, very important. Since you have mentioned about the riba, Mufti Sahib, what would you say to a person who believes that, you know, today's riba, today's interest is actually fine, it's not haram, you know, they go into this argument trying to differentiate between riba, usury and interest. I think uh, Dr. Muhammad Salim as well in uh, his book, uh, Islamic Banking, a $300 billion deception. This is where he all argued for as well, that interest is not usury and usury is haram because usury is oppressive. Interest is not oppressive. And I think he's given a very, you know, compelling example. I say compelling because many people would find it compelling of what happened in uh, Iran before the Islamic revolution, when the Shah was still in place, where the government of Iran negotiated a contract to buy Boeing from the US, which was worth millions and millions of dollars. And uh, at the time, the central bank of Iran invited the different banks from around the world to come up with the best offer, a loan offer to lend them money so that they can buy Boeing. And they said all these international banks, they try to compete with one another. He said to the point where it was some of these offers, they were almost, almost 0% interest rate. So he asked then a question, who do you think was being oppressed in this scenario? Was it Iran who was taking the loan with interest or was it the bankers themselves? Mm. So what would you say to these people who now think, you know, it's absolutely fine. I can afford to pay interest. Interest is everywhere. I can afford to pay. I don't feel oppressed. Therefore, the Quran is not really addressing to me anymore. Mm. What would you say to these people? No, it's, it's a very good question that's raised because this is something which people raise an objection. I've heard it several times. Well, the Quranic principles and Sharia is not based solely on how you feel right and how outcomes are right the principle is a principle it's a matter of fact whether it's a hundred pounds whether it's one penny if it's riba if it falls in excess and, it, and fulfills the conditions of riba it is riba end of story islam is not just there to prevent the utmost oppression so where a person feels like oh yeah i'm really oppressed but anything that leads towards it as well right so one penny might not feel oppressive but remember, for, for you as a debtor, it might not be oppressive. But remember, for uh, what's the reverse and flip is for the creditor, right? the lender. The lender might be doing this at a, such a large scale, charging a million people 1p each. So what he's created straight away is this kind of monopoly, or he's tried to create a scenario. And look, today in the news, I was just looking at this, it's in Bloomberg. The news mentioned that the bottom 90% of Americans are borrowing from the top 1%. Exactly what it does. I mean, the 90% might not feel oppressed because they're all involved in it. But what's happening is through that 1%, that 1% gains so much power, they can influence the markets, the society, the economy. They gain power artificially through money, which was not theirs, which is a gift from Allah. They abuse all the contracts, have no ethical frameworks, can milk the 90%. Those 90% are completely 
subjugated to that one percent, and that's why I was just thinking about it. Why does Allah wage war? You know, bi Allah. Why does Allah wage war on riba? Because look, there's an element I see, like an element of shirk happening here, whereby this one percent is becoming so powerful, they are controlling everything, and these ninety percent are totally dependent at the mercy of the one percent, whereby it's questioning their iman. That's why the hadith about debt. Because how do you become kafir is through this where you start going to your creditor and, and subjugating yourself to him. So I think there's much more to riba than just it's the overall macro impact it's having, which has to be taken into consideration, where it creates imbalance, it creates manipulation, exploitation, as we're seeing. And it's the few who are controlling the many. And it's at the mercy, because it's riba, it's not within the framework of sharia. The world will be controlled through the nafs of this one percent, and that's when you see chaos. And when nafs is, of course, left unbridled, it's only a recipe for chaos. So one p or one pound or hundred pounds, riba is riba, right? If it fulfills the definition of riba, it's riba. Sharia doesn't look at oh yeah, this is the outcome or what are the feelings and these things. No, the principles and this you know this argument against and this is a different discussion to have for us at another time which is, I wrote an article about ethical considerations and how Sharia works and everything. How You can't have Sharia and the spirit of Sharia. And this argument is made, you have the letter and the, and the spirit. They're not two separate things. It can't be the letter is going against the spirit, right? It's the, the spirit is understood through the letter. You can't have two alien concepts. It, it doesn't work like that, right? So I think it's very important for people. And this all comes down to studying. There's very little studying done. Nowadays, there's too much talking, too less studying. Right, too less reading, but too much talking and commenting, and so it's important to yeah, of course, in scholarly circles you'll have discussions like this. In scholarly circles, there's room to have these discussions about inflation. Do you consider that to be riba? These are valid questions. In a classroom, anything can be asked, anything can be discussed, anything can be debated. At times, the teacher won't know. That's fair, but the idea is to understand in light of the principles, in light of what our salaf and our fuqaha have laid down for us. Because that is the correct way to understand. That's the correct worldview to have when approaching all these matters. Or else, if you don't stick to your tradition and your roots like this, the world can become a very, very, you know, scary place. It can consume you completely and devour you and leave you nowhere. That is very deep, Mufti Sab. And you know, on this, you are absolutely right. You, you know, before talking, people need to study. Before talking on any topic, people need to study. And sometimes people do not, I don't know whether it's the same thing in English, but you know, in French, we say people do not see beyond their nose. <laughs> so sometimes people do not feel, they do not realize what they're talking about. And especially when it comes to topics like riba, you know, yes, the ulama, they have said that, you know, riba is a mean, especially, you know, the, the Muslim economists, they have written extending articles and extended books to show why riba is oppressive etc 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 but this is not new first of all and secondly the fact that you do not feel oppressed by riba whether it's interest call it interest or usually it does not mean anything because mm-hmm. even from the interest is something that existed from long ago Right. So even in ancient Greece as well, you know, they have that discussion as to whether interest is ethical or not. And throughout history, interest existed. Now, not everybody felt oppressed by the system. There will be people, they have, they were governments that borrowed, right? They were kings that borrowed on the interest. 
they were powerful. They probably didn't feel oppressed, right? So the fact that they didn't feel oppressed, it doesn't mean that automatically, you know, it's become halal. Because otherwise, at the time when Quran was revealed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he would have made that distinction. He would have told people, if you feel oppressed, then do not take a loan on the riba. If you feel, you know, you can afford, then just fair enough, pay for it. So I think sometimes people tend to, to, to forget about these things. It's and I believe maybe it's because of a lack of studies or lack of reading or something like that. I know there's two examples here, which I think are personal. Number one is COVID, right? Not everybody gets symptoms in COVID. Yeah, it affects everybody. Same thing with riba. Not everybody would feel oppressive, but it has an impact in the system. The way it divides is a virus. It's a cancer for the system. You might not feel the symptoms, but it definitely has an imbalance in the system. That's number one. Number two is alcohol and drinking. You can drink one drop of alcohol. You can drink an entire bottle. The fatwa will be the same. Both are impermissible, right? Because the thing itself is prohibited. So even if you have one drop, you're not intoxicated by one drop. Nobody will, and you'll say, I'm not intoxicated. I've done nothing wrong. I just had one sip. Everybody will tell you that's not permissible. Same thing with riba. It's the system that you're engaging with. It has a macro impact. Allah's ahkam and rulings are against the system itself. Systemically, these things are a cancer for the society. So even a drop or a whole bottle, they're the same because they lead to a system being adopted, which Allah does not want. Definitely. Muftisab, on this, before we just finish, I would like to ask you for some book recommendation. Subhanallah, you know, it's a book recommendations are very, very hard because there's so many books you can read. What I would say, is it about Islamic finance or just general, any book? You can probably name uh, one book in general and one book in Islamic finance. Okay, if it comes to a general book, I would say that one of the most amazing books that I have read, it would be, if it's a general book, I think it's tafsir-wise, right? This is for ulama. Ibn Ashur's tafsir. I really, really liked it because look because we're talking about explanations and ta'alil and everything you know he explains ahkam in a really nice way even from a balagha he explains the balagha verses and everything so for quran and tafsir i really like ibn ashur right that's why it's called i really really like that that's one and then when it comes to islamic finance i would say that uh, a book which i really really like in islamic finance is i mean i would say fiqhul buyu if it's a like a study because mm-hmm. I think Muftaqi Uthmani Sahib, his writings are such that you can read it a hundred times and you'll always learn something new. That's the way he writes. I think Fiqhul Buyu is definitely then the one to advise people, which is for scholars, because this is like a more scholarly thing. Yes. Alhamdulillah, I had the benefit and the honor to teach Fiqhul Buyu. I've taught it for two years now. Mashallah. The whole book. But every time you open it, read it, teach it, there's always some kind of like ishara or something new you learn when you teach it. Or even when you read it. So I would say fiqh al-buyu is definitely something to study. You don't just read. You should study fiqh al-buyu, right? It's very, very powerful. Okay, on this, that brings us to a conclusion. Many thanks to you, Mufti Faraz, for making the time. It was really a pleasure hosting you. And to all our listeners, I hope you have enjoyed this. Please email me at bilal at islamicfinanceguru.com with any feedback or suggestions for other scholars we should interview. And uh, don't forget, Bilal is with the double L in the middle. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. 
Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum.